Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to over 180,000 times in countries all over the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, welcome. Our podcasts feature the very best Middle East and North Africa experts, providing you with unique insights, insights you'll not find anywhere else. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, how about making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. And you know what? If you care about the Middle East and North Africa the way I think you do, I guarantee you, you will not be disappointed by what you find. My guest today is Sanam Vakil, head of the Middle East and North Africa program at London's Chatham House. Escalation is on everyone's mind as the Middle East and the world enter a dangerous year. And that's what Sanam Vakil has joined me to talk about. Welcome back to the podcast, Sanam. Thank you for having me, Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, on the 20th of January, Israel hit a building in Damascus that was believed to house an IRGC intelligence unit. Five Iranian Revolutionary Guards were killed in that attack. How significant is that strike in terms of this growing conflict that began on 7th of October? Well, this conflict builds on what has been a creeping pattern of escalation that is beginning to be quite dangerous and very alarming. Uh, since the start of the Gaza war, Iran and Hezbollah have been repeatedly messaging that they were not looking to get directly involved in, in the conflict. Um, and they've been quite deliberate in, in getting that message out there. But nevertheless, I think Israel has been looking to deter further group activity, future group activity. And there has been uh, an increasing uptick in uh, strikes. A Hamas commander was taken out in, in Lebanon, Saleh al-Aruri, an IRGC commander, Musavi, was taken out in Syria. We've also seen a number of um, missile strikes against coalition forces in Iraq, and the Americans have also um, been responding to that. There was a terror attack in Kerman, Iran, on January 3rd that took the life of over 80 Iranians, and that attack was attributed to ISIS. Um, and in response to that, the Iranians also directly um, sent missiles into Erbil, in Iraq, targeting a supposed Israeli spy agency. In Idlib, uh, again, supposedly targeting um, ISIS. And also on top of that, if, if those two were not enough, um, also hitting at Baluchi groups in Pakistan. So it was a three for one. And, and that just shows you the sort of uptick of tit for tat taking place uh, between uh, Iran and Israel and, and the axis of resistance. And I've neglected to mention the Houthis, and I'm sure we'll get to that as we well. We will. We will get to the Houthis. As you say, this this uptick in, in uh, well, it's it's a kind of a tit for tat, isn't it, in a way, dangerous. Uh, this most recent strike, now we've got five IRGC killed. The, the Iranians, they threaten 
retribution. Do you think that they will move on this in, in, in a significant way? Or do you think they'll play this kind of cautious game? We saw that with Pakistan. They, they kind of agreed that, okay, we don't want to escalate this anymore. But I'm just wondering where this puts the uh, the thermometer, if you will, how, how much this increases the temperature. Well, I think uh, to use your thermometer analogy, the temperature is certainly rising and the conflicts are beginning to blend together. Um, and this is because the axis of resistance is also showing its transnational or, um, potential. It's in the interdependency of the axis of resistance across the region. And I think Iran talks a big game and, and likes to say that it will respond. It, it has a hard time directly um, hitting back against uh, Israel in the region or uh, in Israel itself. And it has long relied on these groups to exert uh, deterrence, uh, but also to do the hard work where Iran can't do it directly. Iran will probably respond, but at, through a different sort of mechanism. The response is not always tit for tat in terms of missiles and drones, there is also cyber uh, attacks that, that could take place, attacks that could take place on the high seas. There are different approaches that Israel uh, that Iran could take uh, depending on the situation. And, and so uh, I think this just raises the temperature um, and Israel has to sort of increase its operating capability at a time where the Gaza war, you know, very much continues and, and is causing uh, damage as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just that, that axis of resistance, just remind our listeners who that axis of resistance is. Yes, the axis of resistance is a Iran-backed network of regional groups um, that include state as well as non-state actors across the region from Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in, in, in the Gaza Strip. There are some smaller groups in the West Bank, Hezbollah being a very important partner in the axis of resistance with Iran in Lebanon, uh, a number of groups in, in Syria, as well as support uh, support of uh, the Syrian state itself, a massive array of groups also in Iraq, some part of the government and some uh, more parochial uh, and last and certainly not least the Houthi or Ansar Allah group in Yemen. Yeah, well, let's get on to the Houthis now, because as you say, last but not least by any means, the Red Sea attacks continue with the Houthis insisting they're being selective in their targeting there was a spokesman over the weekend uh, spoke to Reuters, a quote from that, we do not want the escalation to expand. This is not our demand. We imposed rules of engagement in which not a single drop of blood was shed or major material losses. It represents pressure on Israel only, not pressure on any country in the world. Now, should we take this uh, at face value? Is, is what the Houthis are claiming broadly true? I mean, in theory, um, there have been no lives lost, although two American service Navy SEALs have gone missing in part of a interdiction of a, a Iranian ship in the arena. So I'm not sure how connected all of that is. My hunch is it's more connected than it's being represented. I think what the Houthis are uh, trying to um, show, of course, is that uh, they have disruptive capacity and, and they have uh, a, an ability to maybe transfer the costs of the Gaza war on the open seas in the Red Sea and in the Bab al-Mandab, and they have shown uh, an inability to, to disrupt 
merchant shipping. And, and that, of course, is posing pressure not just on shipping companies, but transferring the costs of longer um, transport uh, times to customers. And, and over time, this will increase for, for individuals. Um, I think in practice, though, the Houthis are are not just disrupting <laughs> maritime shipping, but showing their long term staying power in, in North Yemen and and their ability to be a long term threat, not just on the open seas, but uh, for the Arabian Peninsula uh, more broadly. And I think that raises questions about how to deal with the group that was about to be normalized. There were long standing efforts uh, led by the UN, but also very much supported by the US government to uh, negotiate and sign a ceasefire agreement with the Houthis that would then shift uh, the uh, external war with the Houthis to one that would focus on building a Yemeni Yemeni uh, peace process. Mm. And that uh, Mm. currently is very much off the table. Very much off the table. Uh, At the same time, the Houthis have gone out of their way to a try and reassure the Saudis and the Emiratis that there's not going to be any missiles or drone attacks going their way. There were previously, but they've been very keen to make that perfectly clear. The other thing, the the stated position of the Houthis is declare a ceasefire in Gaza and the attacks on shipping will stop. Simple, clear message. You can take it at face value or or not, but let, let's take it at face value for the for the purpose of this this uh, argument. Here in the UK and in Washington, the stance has been that the two are not connected. Gaza and the Red Sea completely different. What do you make of that? Because I'm puzzling, honestly, to get my head around it. Yeah, well, certainly, I think policymakers in Washington and in the UK would like to keep the portfolios separate. That sort of reflects a longstanding strategy to separate regional files uh, to deal with issues in a more siloed way than linking them all together. The Houthis, however, uh, you know, should, you know, should we take their words at face value, um, are very much instrumentalizing the war in Gaza, not just to showcase their long-term potential destabilizing capacity, but um, obviously also to develop more legitimacy across Yemen, which has a um, strong view against Israel's uh, war more broadly and in support of Palestinian statehood. I find it hard to believe even if the war in Gaza was stopped tomorrow, that the Houthis could bounce back to business as usual. And and really what the Houthis uh, might or might not realize in in sort of upping the ante that they've done is really raise red flags about uh, their ability to be uh, normalized and, and raise questions as to whether they can be a reliable business partner, political actor, whether they can get down to the business of governance and accountability. Mm, yeah, of course, the, the knock on the Houthis is that the more they ask and the more they're given, the more they keep asking and the more they delay a, a final uh, peace settlement. The Saudis are desperate to to end their, their engagement in Yemen. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and Sanam Vakil, Director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. The Digest is a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. We are supported solely by our subscribers. If you'd like to support that independent voice, please consider making a small donation. 
details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, be sure and check out the offer of a free two-month trial subscription to our reader-supported daily newsletter. Go to the website, check us out, see what you think. Two months, no cost to you. You won't regret it. Let me let me go back to Iran, if I may, though. Some pundits take the view that, uh, as one put it, all roads lead to Tehran. Is that the case? Well, I guess you're referring um, through that sort of quote with regards to the axis of resistance lead to Iran, um, all perhaps issues pertaining to regional security and stability pertain to Iran. I would broadly agree to that. However, on the one hand, I think that underplays the role and relevance of members of the axis of resistance and their agency. And if we underplay their agency and, and their domestic context, then uh, we we can't really think through how to break the axis of resistance or weaken the axis of resistance. And, and many of the entry points or potential policy options are um, by looking at the domestic context across the region in Lebanon or Iraq or in Yemen. So I think uh, just thinking about the octopus, as the Israelis like to call uh, Iran, is, is short-sighted. But more broadly, that's also giving Iran a lot of of agency and power at the same time. And I think that Iran's axis of resistance has been born out of opportunity, crisis in the region, and Iran's very deliberate efforts at, at capitalizing on, on crisis and opportunity. So it, it doesn't provide necessarily a quick and easy policy response as well. The West, the U.S. in particular, um, has has repeatedly shown it doesn't have the intent or the bandwidth to develop a broader Iran strategy or to take uh, a more aggressive posture towards Iran. And so that, I think, leaves regional states um, in a in a precarious position. They've supported containment in the past, sanctions of Iran um, through maximum pressure under the Trump administration. They supported the withdrawal, uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA. Um, and none of these efforts have really altered or changed Iran's regional strategy. It might We might see Iran having embedded further into the region. And so I think what is needed is much more of a determined, disciplined dialogue with Iran, but also at the same time to manage that dialogue with uh, regional efforts of deterrence and upscaling that kind of regional uh, security landscape and capability at the same time. Mm. Yeah, it's been said for some time, hasn't it, uh, Sanam, that uh, Iran, despite all its domestic problems and challenges and, and a weak economy, it's still playing this asymmetric warfare game very adroitly. And it seems to me perhaps even better than ever as they sense weakness in America in particular. What do you think? I mean, I think it's easy to see Iran winning. I hear a lot of people talking about how Iran is is the big uh, winner from um the war in Gaza, and it's exploiting a lot of opportunities. I, however, continue to see Iran um, in in a sort of defensive posture in the region. Um, I think it, it capitalizes and then tries to capture 
weakened or failing states and doesn't invest productively um, or positively across the region. Iran isn't seen as a, an economic or political model that anyone wants to emulate. And as you mentioned, within Iran, uh, there is a huge le legitimacy crisis. There hasn't just been the uh, quite uh, profound protests that were inspired inspired and motivated by Masa Amini's um, death in September of, of 2022. Is the um, young, young woman who uh, was arrested and, and, and beaten to death uh, because she wasn't wearing a headscarf properly. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and that le uh, you know, uh, led to a cascade of, of national protests, um, including protests that developed into economic demands on the states, political and e equal rights demands um, from the state, led by, by, by women in particular um, across the country. And also uh, minority groups, uh, Kurds and, and, and Baluchis were, Sunnis were participating as well. So it wasn't just those protests, though, uh, that we've seen in Iran. We've seen protests in 2019, protests in 2017, protests in 2009. There has just been a series of significant and mounting array of grievances uh, from within the Iranian population. And I think that's also important um, to consider. Uh, this is a system and a state that is, is looking to uh, continue uh, to survive, uh, but it's not a system or a state that is investing in its people, that is building and trying to reform its system of governance. Uh, it, it's not trying to manage its internal um, environmental and, and climate change crisis. It's in a it's in a defensive mode, Iran today, and so I think it's important not to oversell or overstate what is looking like a, a victory for Iran, because I'm not quite sure uh, this is a victory for Iran. Mm, yeah, that's that's a point very well made, and I'm a, a lot of weakness at home, apparent successes abroad, but uh, those successes come at a cost to ordinary Iranian people, and they've made it pretty clear in all these protests that they're frustrated that money's being spent abroad on, on this asymmetric warfare while they suffer at home. Uh, and, and you did make the point, I'm quoting from an excellent BBC interview I heard last week, that Iran doesn't seek to pile in on the Gaza war. And, and can you open that up a little bit more for our listeners about what, what you're thinking there is? Sure. It really, since the um, October 7th attacks and, and the Gaza war, uh, Iranian officials at all layers and levels from Iran's supreme leader on down into the military and security establishment have, have really made um, clear messages that Iran, while supporting Hamas and, and while um, being deeply critical of, of Israel, it has supported um, regional calls for a ceasefire. Iran has made it clear that it isn't seeking to join uh, a broader fight to support Hamas or um, pile into a broader war against Israel. And I think that Iran is it got particular goals. A um, goal of the Islamic Republic remains above all to survive and to try to protect the security and stability of the system that it has built for itself. Now, the the system will uh, sort of commemorate the 45th anniversary of the Iranian revolution in February. Um, but part of other goals include uh, weakening Israel. And of course, it does try and um, continue to put pressure on Israel uh, through the war in Gaza, through uh, proxy pressure coming from southern Lebanon, from Syria, from Iraq, and um, also from Yemen. I think that pressure 
showcases that the axis of resistance isn't isn't just there on Israel's borders, but it coordinates um, and and perhaps it operates in in much more of an interdependent uh, manner. And I think through watching the axis of resistance actually um, coordinate in in its regional operations for the first time, we're going to learn a lot about um, what what the axis of resistance aims to achieve, uh, how it operates. It, you know, it shares propaganda. It has in the past, of course, provided training and capacity building. And so I think that, you know, this is a, a moment where we're going to learn how, how it operates more effectively. And I think more broadly, Iran um, finally seeks to continue to uh, push or, or benefit from what it looks like uh, U.S. disengagement from the region. Although, you know, of course, since October 7th, the U.S. Has, re- has redeployed, sending in aircraft carriers and a nuclear submarine and has taken a very engaged posture uh, in, in the Red Sea, striking at the Houthis, um, and of course, pushing back against Iran-backed groups in I- Iraq and Syria. Um, Iran is calculating that the U.S. doesn't want a broader war, doesn't want a direct war with Iran, uh, that the Biden administration has to focus on a, a, an election campaign and, of course, its broader geopolitical challenges with Russia, with the war in Ukraine still ongoing, and, of course, with China as well. And so, uh, you know, in in the broader perspective, Iran is banking on uh, no bigger or no direct war um, with the United States this year, and 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 it and it wants that to continue onto the horizon for the mm. time being. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting and, and dangerous strategy to play, particularly given this incredible situation in Gaza and in Israel. Netanyahu has come out clearly, and he said no to a two state solution. His allies here and in Washington are expressing dismay and disappointment. I'm thinking of uh, Grant Schaaf's, the UK defense minister. He used that word, didn't he? Disappointed uh, at uh, what Netanyahu had said. Um, He also says, Netanyahu, that the war will be a long one. The Houthis have said they're not going to back down in the Red Sea. Fierce fighting continues in Gaza, even in areas where the IDF has claimed victory. Civilian casualties now topping 25,000. Where and how do you think this ends, Sanam? Well, it should end with a ceasefire hostage release and a process uh, that will hopefully and finally lead to Palestinian statehood. I think that's where it should end. And that's where I believe um, that the international community, along with regional states, need to be pressing um, and working together in the most time-sensitive manner to achieve that. Um, I'm very worried that the timeline for a ceasefire and a political process is not moving as fast as the timeline for regional escalation. And if there isn't greater urgency put on the former, the whole region could become very, very much inflamed and, and that could have disastrous consequences. Um, above all, I think Palestinians need uh, in, in in Gaza urgent humanitarian relief. I think the consequences of this war is multi-generational. Uh, the famine that is underway needs to be urgently addressed. And, you know, of course, Israeli hostages need to be returned home simultaneously. If the international community, and I think here the region has a very important role to play, 
in the context of limited US and, and European bandwidth, if not legitimacy, if a, a process doesn't emerge from this. And, and right now, of course, it's hard to see that coming, particularly with Prime Minister Netanyahu's very strong stance against a Palestinian statehood. Um, but if this process doesn't come to fruition, you know, I very much fear that we're going to become numb and used to uh, the devastation in Gaza and, and Palestinians, again, will lose uh, an opportunity to address injustice and um, lose an opportunity to uh, corral and, and develop a, a pathway ahead that would give them the legitimacy they need um, as a state. Palestinians have experienced uh, extraordinary injustice over the past hundred years and, of course, for a number of decades now. And the West and I think also regional states have not stood up or defended um, Palestinians and, of course, Palestinian leaders are also to blame. Mm -hmm. The most important thing, and you put your finger on it, is a ceasefire. That's what everyone should be calling for. We're not hearing it yet. And uh, God knows we need we do need to hear it. Sanam, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, Sanam Vakil. You'll have noticed we bring you the podcasts with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators, and writers, contributors like Sinam. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of over 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights. Insights you'll not find anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.